was our Cactus Campus, our venue across campus, and then our chapel join us for our time in the Word. I want to make a comment before we uh, pray and go into our, our time in the Word. Uh, it was mentioned earlier that our, our church, as part of Compelled by Grace, the vision campaign that we've been in for the last couple of years and still continues on for a year, part of that is making deeper inroads missions-wise into Europe. And at least in this service, Margie said that I'm very passionate about that. That's an understatement. I, I have felt for a long time as I have looked at all the parts of the world that the Christian church is in, that we should be in all those parts, like uh, far, far Southeast Asia, Africa, Mexico, the Middle East. I mean, huge hotspots where we should be involved in missions. But the new frontier, if you will, uh, trust me, is going to be uh, Western and, and still even Eastern Europe. Because... Christianity is just about dead in Western Europe. It really is. The, the European Union, when they started uh, the European Union, they forbade, they made sure that there was no mention of their Christian history, no mention of God at all in the governing documents. And as a result of that, the vast majority of Western European countries today are just about as secular uh, as you can get. And you think about it, guys, I mean, when Winston Churchill died back after World War II, he never envisioned that his famous Britain or any of the other Western European countries would become so godless just within a few generations. And it really has happened that way. So we're involved in, in trying to bolster the church and strengthen the church in Europe. And one of the ways we do this is through the European Leadership Forum, a gathering of about 700 different European leaders every year from 40 different European countries. And we go over as a team and just help put on the forum. We help serve. We uh, do everything from registration to room monitoring to uh, just whatever we can do to, to put the forum on. We take some speakers over there as well, myself and Tim Kimmel and Wayne Grudem and others. And so if you at all are interested in that, on Wednesday, I'm sorry, Monday the 22nd at 6.30 here at the Shea Campus, we are having an informational meeting on that. If you don't go on that mission trip, uh, we offer about 30 others. And I hope that you at least go on one at some point uh, in the next few years to broaden your spiritual horizon. Uh, with that said, we're going to have some rich time in the Word right now. We really are, and I need all the prayer I can for this message. So would you bow with me, and let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the worship that has preceded our time in your Word right now, where we can focus our sights and soften our hearts before you. And I pray, God, that as we have done that in our various venues and here, that, God, you would have now prepared us for our time in the Word, and that, Lord, you would speak to our softened hearts, to our focused minds, the truth that you have for us. And Lord, as always, our commitment back is that we will follow you and we will live out that which we know to be true. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why well, don't you know if you've noticed or not, but our American culture today, and this is different from just a little while ago, is actually enamored with the extraordinary. It really is. And what you need to know is that that's vastly different than how things were in our grandparents' age just 40 or 50 years ago. 
I mean, to be sure, our culture today is kind of a skeptical culture, not all that as much interested in church and things of faith as they used to be, but it's fascinating because they've replaced that with an actual obsession with the supernatural and the extraordinary. And again, that was not the way back in the 50s or 60s. I think it all began with Poltergeist. Do you guys remember that movie? I mean, I can remember being a kid watching Poltergeist and some kid getting sucked into the TV in some paranormal experience. And from that point on, we have had hundreds of movies in our generation ranging from Sixth Sense and Ghost, remember Ghost with Patrick Swayze, in which people speak from beyond the dead, to Meet Joe Black and City of Angels, where people interact with demon and angels, to end time scenarios like Deep Impact and Armageddon, I mean, lots of movies you would have never seen in the 50s and 60s when we were doing John Wayne movies and things like that, we now have in our culture today that just reveal our obsession with the extraordinary, with what might be beyond our five senses. And even primetime today is filled with shows about the supernatural and the extraordinary. When I was growing up, it was Hogan's Heroes and Gilligan's Island. Remember that? And now you have all these primetime shows that are talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and zombies and things like that. That's what my kids have grown up with. I'm telling you, Hollywood, which always takes its cues from culture, dreams up the most extraordinary storylines. And we live in a culture today that is wide open and even enamored with the supernatural and the extraordinary. And yet here's the deal. In being so wide open, there has been a huge price to pay. And that is that along with all of this emphasis on the supernatural and the extraordinary, there has also come a lot of confusion and misunderstanding as well. Maybe look at it this way. You can't climb a mountain like Everest without a good guide, right? If you try to, you're going to die on that mountain. And God says it's the same way with the supernatural. You cannot summit the mountain of understanding the supernatural and the extraordinary without a guide, without some cogent understanding. And yet we live in a culture today that's trying to climb that mountain with hardly any understanding or any guide at all. And so the reason that that's important is that what we're doing in the series that we're in right now is that we are claiming that Jesus Christ came to this earth in great part to be our guide. He did come to this earth to redeem us from our sins and to bring us back to God, but in so doing, he also came back to show us who God is, what the spiritual realm is about, and to help us understand the supernatural and even the extraordinary. He came to show us God, and he is our guide in all things spiritual. And so as we continue our look at Mark chapter 1, where Mark is bent on helping us or helping to introduce us to Jesus and present to us avenues for how we can know God and Jesus better, we get this week to a true-to-life story of something that happened to Jesus and his initial four disciples that does nothing but thrust us into the deep end of the extraordinary and the supernatural. So if ever Jesus was going to be our guide, and helping us understand the extraordinary in a culture that's enamored with it, today is it. So let's read this story together. And as we've been doing in this entire series, what do you do when I read the gospel story? You stand. So stand here and at Cactus Venue and Chapel, please stand. 
and follow along with me as I read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. And see if you can pick up on all the extraordinary things going on here in the midst of the ordinary. It says this, And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You may be seated. There are two things going on in this passage here that you and I don't want to miss. Two things that will, I think, forever help us understand this idea of the extraordinary, even in our lives today, in the midst of the ordinary. And here's the first thing this story teaches us, and that is that there is ordinary life, and there is extraordinary life, and Jesus happens to be in and meet us in both. Let me repeat that. I know it sounds simple, but this is going to be very profound for our lives today. There is ordinary life, and then God declares there is extraordinary life, and both are real, and Jesus meets us in both realms. So notice that the story begins uh, by describing all the ordinary stuff, this is really important, happening in Jesus' life and the disciples' life at this time. You might remember that the context of Mark 1 is that Jesus had just come off being baptized, He had taken a trip into the wilderness, and then he had been teaching in the synagogue. And though some extraordinary things happened in the midst of all that, it was still pretty ordinary stuff going on in Jesus' life. And at this point, as our story enters in, they decide to go to Simon and Andrew's house in Capernaum. Now, it's fascinating. We actually know uh, about where this house is even today, 2,000 years later, in Capernaum. Because in the second century, archaeologists discovered uh, through excavations a house on the north end of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum that had the inscriptions Lord, Christ, and Peter in them. And so by the fifth century, they had built a house over this house so that it could be forever uh, saved there. And people today can go to the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and you can see a picture of it here. And then in the other venues, you can see a picture. This is what is known as Peter's house, a simple Jewish home, 2,000 years old, that is still there today. And we can go there and see it. And this is the house, most surely, uh, that this story begins with. And in this house, you can picture it as you see it there. In this house, there is a sick mother-in-law. And it says there in verse 30 that Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Now, the Greek word for fever back then is very similar to the word we use today. It simply means hot to the touch, no different than having a fever today. And as we're going to see in a minute, this is interesting, the reason that these five men went to this house, now isn't this kind of funny, is because they were hungry. And we know that when men get hungry, you don't want them to get any hungrier because then things turn south. And so these guys are hungry, and that's why they went to this house. Why is all of that important? It's ordinary life. On the heels of baptism, wilderness, and then teaching in a synagogue, they go to a normal Jewish home, complete with a fairly normal flu or cold, and five men wanting something to eat. 
You can't get much more ordinary than that. And what I need you to see, we're going to put all this together here in a minute, is that Jesus is smack dab in the middle of it all. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes some of you wonder, where is he in the midst of my ordinary life? In the middle of it, right there with you, journeying with you. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus is in the mundane and the ordinary as well as in the really exciting and the extraordinary. And it's interesting that the story begins by showing, revealing to us Jesus in the ordinary aspects of life, just journeying with people. But then two things happen that propel us into the realm of the extraordinary. First, Peter, or Peter's mother-in-law is miraculously healed by Jesus. It says there in verse 31 that he walked over to her, simply touched her by taking her hand, and the fever left her, and she began fixing these 500 guys some food. Now don't miss, because it's easy to gloss over, the definition of a miracle given here. This is really important. It was instantaneous, complete, and permanent, and it was something that defied natural law. This is really important. The theologians have wrestled for thousands of years of what a miracle is. And you and I today tend to call things miracles that don't fit the biblical definition of miracles. Uh, so somebody, say, uh, is trying to quit smoking and they want God's help, so they put a patch on their hand and they, or on their arm and they pray and they quit smoking and say, it's a miracle. Technically not. God, I'm not saying God's not in that. He is. But if you're using the patch and things like that, then there's other things working there. Or when people get sick and, and, and say a terrible cancer, and they come to me and say, Pastor, God healed me. And I'll say, tell me about it. Well, I went to chemo and radiation, and I got surgery, and, and then people prayed for me. Again, I want to be very clear. God is in that, because God's in the ordinary and the extraordinary, and God might have even broken through in some ways. But it's fascinating, in the Scriptures, the definition of a miracle is that it's permanent, instantaneous, complete, and one that defies natural law. Now, this woman had a definite fever. She was confined to bed, and Jesus simply touched her, and instantly she got up to the point of serving them with no fatigue, no weakness that usually comes after a flu. No, she was completely and permanently healed, and it defied any natural understanding. And what you need to know, to be sure, is that all of Jesus' miracles and healings were this way. I mean, you look at some miracle crusades today, and I don't want to be too hard, but you have this vague symptomology. I have partial hearing loss in my right ear. And then somebody prays, and then the guy says, you're feeling better? And he says, oh, yes, I feel much better now. Again, I'm not saying God's not in that. That does not necessarily fit the bill of a biblical miracle or healing. Because here's what Jesus did. Blind people saw. Lame people walked. Dead people came back to life. Fish and loaves that were designed to feed 10 people fed thousands. And they were instantaneous, complete, and permanent kinds of miracles and healings that had no natural explanation. They were markedly extraordinary. That's what Jesus does here. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Now, hang on to that and notice that something else happens that takes us from the ordinary to the extraordinary, and that is that as word gets around that these extraordinary things are happening, uh, it says there in verse 33 that the whole city, 
Like lots of people gathered together at the door, and Jesus spent the entire evening doing miracles and healings and even casting out unclean spirits. As we saw last week, evil is real. And evil can even be personified in human beings, as scary as that might be. But I suggested Hitler and things like that. We have evidence of this, of, of evil being inside human beings. And Jesus knew that that was a reality. And so part of his miracles and healings was that he cast out unclean spirits out of people. And it says there in verse 32 and 34 that all who were ill and plagued by evil were brought to Jesus, and he healed many, which means that there were probably so many present that he couldn't get to all of them in one evening. But he sure healed a lot of people that night. And again, I, I know I'm going to step on some toes today, but it's interesting that, that, that Dateline was not there with hidden cameras showing what a sham that it was. Nobody was crying foul at all. Isn't that interesting? I mean, there'd be lots of people who would not believe in Jesus just because of his miracles and healings, but we have no evidence at all from either the inside the Bible or what we call extra biblical sources that anybody doubted Jesus did these things. They were as clear as the noonday sun. They were obvious to everybody, and the people that saw them at the very least said some extraordinary stuff is going on here. And that's my point, that it's life going from the ordinary. Baptism, wilderness, synagogue, a sick mom in a normal Jewish home, and five hungry men. It's life going from the ordinary to the extraordinary clear, unambiguous, miraculous healing, followed by lots more, and even people set free from unclean spirits. And it's fascinating that Jesus was in both of those settings. And this will be very important for you and I in just a minute when we put this together, that God thrives in being in both the ordinary aspects of your life, but even the extraordinary. Now, before we get to that, we got to deal with the elephant in the room, and that's that I know how some of you think. You're thinking like I did, at least when I first became a Christian. You're thinking, come on, Jamie, do you really believe that this stuff happens today, that, that, that people can get healed, even according to the definition of instantaneous, completely and permanently, and that evil actually can get purged from a human heart? I mean, even in our postmodern world, where people might be into vampires and zombies, most thinking people know that that's hogwash, it's not really real. So when we see the Bible and things like this happening, the question becomes, do we think that those things still happen today? And I gotta tell you, it's a very, very important question. And one that in being a Christian for almost 35 years now and a pastor for almost 25 years, I've given a lot of thought and attention to because I think it's an important issue do the things that we see in the Bible, these miracles, these healings, these extraordinary things, go on today, and is there power encounters, if you will, still going on today? And at the risk of oversimplification and it being a reductionist, there's actually three answers, uh, three possible answers to this question. And, and I'll just dumb it down for you. Yes, they're still going on today. No, they have ceased. And my favorite, yes, but let's give some qualifications to it so that we understand it kind of richly. So yes, no, and yes with some qualifications. Right, let's walk through each one of these. There are groups of Christians today that give an unqualified yes. They say that what you see in the Bible is a what you see is what you get kind of situations. 
that people were possessed by evil spirits and people were healing one another and performing miracles and that this happens all the time today just like it did back then. And this is why today we have pockets of Christianity that attempt to imitate today this idea of healings and miracles through healing services, miracle crusades, exorcisms, and things like that. And they claim that what was happening back then is happening the same today. It's just that God is using his chosen instruments today to bring about miracles and healings and casting out of demons just like he used chosen instruments back then. And yet the thing that you and I need to wrestle with, if you maybe grew up in a home like that or have been a part of a denomination like that, and I want to try to be very, very fair here, is that there are times when we have been in some of these unqualified yes settings, and I've been in environments like these in my 35 plus years of being a Christian, and if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to question the authenticity of these miracles and healings that we see. That when we're honest with ourselves and we match up what we're seeing today, I'm trying to be fair, with what we read about in the New Testament, where where though people might have doubted who Jesus was, they didn't doubt at all the authenticity of these miracles and healings. They don't always seem to match up. That what we see today might be at times maybe a little bit of a watered-down approach to what we might call a miracle, or, or maybe we're trying to push it a little bit too hard. Again, I'm trying to be fair here, because there's been plenty of settings where I've been in, and I've seen some vague, undiagnosed symptom that goes away with prayer, and we call it a healing, but the reality is, is that according to the biblical definition of healing, this is somewhat lacking. And so if we saw healings and miracles today in these unqualified, yes, settings that were very similar to the New Testament ones, then I'd be all over that. And as your pastor, I would be telling you too as well. But I think there's a lot of inauthenticity going on among well-meaning Christians today, and I think that that muddies the waters. And I want to be very clear here. I don't doubt that God is in many of these settings. I think he's in, in them. I think that when somebody comes to me and says that through prayer and through fasting and through even the laying out of hands, which our church does, that God entered in and now I'm cancer-free. But when we mix that with a lot of other things like chemo and radiation and surgery and diet and all that, which we should, by the way, it's just hard to claim that as one of the New Testament-style miracles because that's not the kind of thing that Jesus was doing back then. He didn't put people on diet plans, and he didn't send them to doctors. He says, I'm the Son of God in your midst, and I'm here, and we'll see why in a minute, to do some miracles. But I think God is in all the other stuff. We just have to be very careful what we're describing here. And so as a result of this unqualified yes position, and even some of maybe the inauthenticity in it, you got a second group today who go to the other extreme, and entire denominations have been built on this, and they say, no, these things don't really happen today. That was then and this is now. God did those things back then in the time of Jesus and the apostles. But when the Bible was complete and finished, we now have the word of God and that's all we need. They argue that these supernatural manifestations died out at the end of the New Testament period when the apostles died out. 
And now our reliance is on God through faith and the word of God through his truth. And these supernatural gifts, and here's the key word, have now ceased. We call this line of thinking cessationism. They have ceased at the end of the New Testament period. And they just don't happen today. This actually has a lot of historical roots. The kind of founder of modern-day cessationism would be B.B. Warfield. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary for 35 years back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And in one of his writings, he says this. Look up here on the screen. I don't think he could be more clear. He says, my conclusion is that the power of working miracles was not extended beyond the disciples upon whom the apostles conferred it by the imposition of their hands. As the number of these disciples gradually diminished, the instances of the exercise of miraculous powers became continually less frequent and ceased entirely at the death of the last individual on whom the hands of the apostles had been laid. That event would a natural course of things take place before the middle of the second century. And so today as a result of this, guys, you've got entire churches, entire denominations that don't believe that we see things like this today, at least in gift form, because they were for a very special time in salvation history and biblical history, and these things just aren't happening today. And that's the no camp. So you got the unqualified yes camp, you got the no camp, and then, as you can guess where I'm landing, <laughs> there's a third option that many thoughtful Bible experts and scholars have posited, and it's what I simply call the yes with some very clear qualifications. And it goes like this. Now listen very closely. God indeed has done these extraordinary things in the past. And the reality is he can do them today as he chooses. But when you look at the reasons why God did these things in the Bible and why God acted this way through Jesus and the apostles, it becomes clear. Now don't miss this that God was up to something much more than just bringing comfort and relief to people's lives. And it all had to do with his glory and his revelation at certain times in history. And you're saying, what's that about? Well, what we see in the Bible when we look closely is that when God was breaking through, and what I'm going to label here in a minute, in cluster times, in the Old and New Testament, times where he's breaking through in obvious ways, we see a lot of extraordinary things happening as God breaks through. And in the time of Jesus, this is as clear, again, as the noonday sun. In John 2.11, it tells us that Jesus began to do his miracles. Why? To manifest his glory. And then in John 5, verse 36, Jesus says that he was doing these things to show people that he was indeed sent from the Father. Acts 2, verse 22, cites Peter saying that we know that Jesus is from God because of the miracles. And then Hebrews 2, verse 4, tells us that, that God was bearing witness to the revelation of Jesus through signs and wonders. And so please see, folks, I know this is almost hard for 21st century ears to hear. God didn't perform miracles for the primary purpose to make people feel better. I mean, if that was the case, he hopefully would do that for all of us. But God performed miracles and he brought healings for a bigger purpose and that was to reveal his glory, his purposes on planet earth, his revelation at key times in history. It was bearing witness to something that God was really up to. 
And what really helps us make sense of this is that when you look then at the Bible as a whole, you see that indeed there are key cluster times in both the Old and New Testament where this bears out. So like when Israel was being delivered from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt, we see a cluster of signs and wonders, the plagues, the parting of the Wed Sea, the provision of, of, of manna. And then there's another time where Elijah is setting up the prophetic office. And once again, we see a cluster of signs and wonders. And then we get to the New Testament with Jesus coming into this world. And we see a cluster of signs and wonders again. And then it is interesting to know people are right. By the end of the New Testament period, we see a sharp fall off of signs and wonders as the second century church starts to ramp up. That's a very interesting historical fact. But I would argue that in the last 2,000 years, we've seen some cluster times as well. That during times of revival and the first and second great awakenings in Europe and here in America, we read about and see cluster times of miracles and healings that again accompany God's revelation and glory. And I want to be very clear here to not be misunderstood. It's not that God doesn't act in miraculous ways in non-cluster times, both in the Bible and in history. I think he does. That's going to be very important for you and I today. It's just that they are certainly not as prevalent and certainly not at times in the way that you read about in the New Testament or Exodus or Elijah or even other times. And as a result of this, I think it's inauthentic at best, hypocritical at worst, for us to try to manufacture something that God might not be choosing to do in our individual lives or even in our given time. And so the reason that I prefer this third option, yes, with some qualifications, is because it allows me to honor the principle that we're seeing in the story here today, namely that there's ordinary life, there's extraordinary life. I think extraordinary life goes on today. It's just that we have to be careful that we call a spade a spade and that we're honest about what God is up to and that Jesus happens to be in both. He's in the business of taking you and I from ordinary to extraordinary. But listen, when how and in what ways he chooses to show himself in the extraordinary is up to him and him alone. Amen? Let's take another run at that one. But when and how and in what ways he chooses to act in an extraordinary way in our lives is up to him. Amen? I, I, I ran across this again this morning. I, I was reading in my quiet time this morning. I always try to have a quiet time before I come here to be with all of you because you're so loud and I need quiet. And, and, and I was in my quiet time, and I'm reading out of 1 Kings and the life of Solomon. You know what struck me as I read just chapter 12, I think it's chapter 11 or 12 there? It, it, it says that Solomon is now in his sin mode, and, and, and he's just sabotaging the whole kingdom after being the king for years and years on end. It, it says that, that, that God had spoken to him twice all of his adult life. That God had clearly broken through into his ordinary world and given him a clear word from the Lord twice. And you know what hit me was like twice? Like he's the king. Like he's one of the big guys in the, in the Old Testament. Twice? And it kind of made me feel better about my spiritual life. Twice? <laughs> you, you see, sometimes we, we hear people tell stories of the extraordinary. We go, gosh, God must be doing that. Like all the, well, I, I think God does do these things, but twice for Solomon. 
I mean, there's something to that. Listen, folks, he does move and act and reveal himself in our lives for his glory and his purpose. And though it does affect our happiness and well-being, because certainly we're happy when God breaks in, please don't miss this. It's always more about his glory and his purpose than our happiness and comfort. And when it comes to the extraordinary, we have to be careful about what we're expecting from God and even what he might give. So, so what are we to do with all this? What, 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 do we, what does it say about our Christian experience today and our relationship with God through Christ? In our time remaining, I want to share with you one final thought and then a couple of sub-points in this that, that I think will help us apply this in a balanced but faith-filled way that will help us live both ordinary and extraordinary lives in our walk with the Lord. And, and, and here's my second point, and that is that there are definite times that Jesus wants us to know him through the extraordinary. That's what I'm going to hang my head on. There are definite times, don't miss this, guys, that Jesus wants us to know him through the extraordinary. In other words, I'll just say it more boldly. If you never have times of extraordinary things happening in your faith walk with God through Jesus Christ, I would ask you to wonder how engaged you are with him. Because God is not just a God of the ordinary. He's the God of the extraordinary. And as we've seen in our story, he wants to meet us in both. Now, some of you are thinking right now, and rightly so, you're thinking, but Jamie, you just made it clear that all this extraordinary stuff is clustered. Use that word like a dozen times, clustered. And you further insinuated that because it's tied to God's special revelation and his glory, that we shouldn't demand or expect these things from God, especially if this might be a non-cluster time. And now you're telling us to, to, to live in the realm of the extraordinary. What's that about? Two things that will help us apply this if you dare to be so bold. First, I would ask you to pray in faith for God's movement and activity in your life. In other words, pray bold prayers for both ordinary and extraordinary life. And then here's the key, guys, accept from God's hand what he provides. Because here's the deal. I don't know and neither do you how or in what ways God wants to move or act in your world. And, and further, who really even knows whether a cluster time might come in our day and age. For though it might not seem like a New Testament era or an Exodus time right now in our day and age, we are hearing stories from other parts of the world, like the underground church in China, where there's been so much persecution and the kingdom of God has been under so much attack, and we hear stories that are very akin to New Testament times as to what God is doing to take them from the ordinary to the extraordinary. And I believe these things. And i got to tell you, in my 30-plus years of being a Christian, I have seen a few things that come awfully close to only being explained by my technical and, quite frankly, very narrow definition of a miracle. And so I love how the famous Bible teacher and author A.W. Tozer once said it. By the way, you can't get much more conservative than A.W. Tozer. And look up here on the screen. This is one of my favorite Tozer quotes. He says, anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. So here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you? Because, see, that's what faith is. Faith isn't demanding from God. As we'll see in a second, you're going to accept from his hand what he gives. But faith is believing God. And believing that he can do the things that he has done in history, even in your life today. So be bold and ask. 
Our elders meet every month and we lay hands on people and we pray for healing and we pray for God to break through in the extraordinary into people's lives. And we pray with faith, but we accept from his hand what he gives. And this is eminently biblical, by the way. Jesus taught us this in, in very clear language. Look at Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. He said, what man is there among you when a son shall ask him for a loaf? We'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I love that he uses the example of a father and a son here, don't you? Because here's what we know from our kids. I got a son right now. He's a junior in college. Kim and I love him to death. He's the apple of our eye, all that stuff. And I got two girls, too. I love them as well. She's one of them's right here. But, but our son, we kind of dote on and, and all that. And, and he is a little bit spoiled, at least the girls say so, because he is the youngest and the son and all of that. And, and, and he, he tends to only call me from college when he wants what? Money. Exactly. And he's not shy to ask his father for what he sees as good gifts from his father. In fact, he only calls me back when it's about money. And so, you know, that's obviously a high concern to a poor college kid. And there are times when Paul will call and say, hey, Dad, I need money. And Kim and I make those decisions together, and we get off the phone, and there are some times that we say yes, and there are some times that we say no. And you know what my expectation is from my son Paul? That he accepts from my hand what I give. And if he was to cop an attitude and say, but dad, that's not fair and you're not generous, it would be bad goings for he and I for the rest of his college career. But he's smarter than that. He, he knows that we're taking care of him. He knows that we love him. He knows that we want to do what we can, but that's not always going to be yes. And, and here's my point. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here. Jesus says, go to God and ask what you think is good. And it's good to do that. And even believe that as a good father, he will give good gifts to his kids. But the answer is not always yes. Sometimes the answer is no, because as we've seen, this is more about his glory and his purposes in and through your life. And again, it's really hard for 21st century comfort-laden Christians to hear this. But God's number one agenda for you is not that you're happy. Can I say that more clearly? I'm serious. I mean, Giovanna just, just almost gasped here. It's just, I mean, because it seems to go against the gospel of Oprah. God's number one, God's number one agenda for you is not that you're happy. That's what our world thinks. You know what his number one agenda is for you? That your life is glorified in and through his purposes for you. That his glory is made manifest in you. And he knows that this world is only 70, 80, 90, 100 years at the most. That it's like, as Isaiah says, we're like blades of grass here today and gone tomorrow. That this is a fallen world that is not our home. That eternity is forever. And get this, he cares a lot more about your eternal destiny than he does your comfort this side of heaven. And the reason I believe that is because if he didn't, then, <laughs> as Pete just said here, then we'd all be rich. That's probably right. <laughs> but the reality is, is that he does love you, and he wants to break through into your life, and it's okay to ask him. And then on the coattails of this, we have just a few minutes left to keep us firmly balanced, and this will make all the difference for some of you. I would also challenge you to not limit the extraordinary to just signs and wonders. And now this is biblically rich. When it comes to the things that God wants to do in your life, 
that are not just ordinary everyday things like make you in his image, give you life, give you certain gifts and talents to serve him, bless you with a good family, all that stuff. I challenge you to broaden your view and expand your perspective to recognize and honor that there are other ways God breaks into your life in, I would argue, extraordinary ways to draw you closer to himself, but we might not call them miracles or healings, but they count. And this is why I can say God wants you to go into the extraordinary. What am I talking about? Five things, and with this will be done. The first is how about insights from his word? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a borderline miraculous thing every time it happens because it's God breaking through. There are times, and you've had it happen too, where you're reading the Word, which is unlike any other book on planet Earth. You're reading the Bible, and have you ever had this happen? Something jumps off the page at you, and you get an insight into God and spiritual things that you just want to run and tell everybody about it. It just rocks your world. And again, some of you go, no, that never happens to me. Well, then let's help you with Bible study. Let's help you with a devotional life because God does that for me all the time. I remember the very first time it happened, I was a brand new Christian and, and, and I still laugh at this to this day. I was reading my Bible in my dorm room at college and I read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that nobody may boast. You can tell I memorized it. And I read that passage the very first time. You know what thought hit me? oh my gosh, my salvation was more of God than me. I mean, it felt like I was seeking him and I found him, but no, that's a lie. He found me. That, 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 that my salvation is not by works. It's not even about me. Even the faith I have is a gift from God. And I was so excited about that insight. It became so clear to me, some of the workings of God, that I ran down my hall to the only other two Christians I knew at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and I burst into their room and I read that verse and I told them what I had discovered. And I'll never forget what they did. They looked at me and said, everybody knows that. Because <laughs> they've been Christians for years. And I was like, but I don't. And, and since then, I've had so many insights like that where I have an understanding of the nature of God and who he is and how he functions in my life. And I thank him for breaking through in what the world would say is obviously an extraordinary way second way is how about a deep sense of his presence at key times in your life like when you need it the most and you know what i mean times when you feel very alone very much without god in this world and you look to him and he just graces you with a rich sense of his presence i, I could tell you story after story of times when i i really thought god wasn't going to give me much at all and i get peace that as the bible says passes understanding how about the conversion thirdly of a friend loved one or family member the Bible tells us that every time a sinner repents, there is more rejoicing in heaven than the 99 who have already repented. So as far as I can tell, except for the marriage supper between the lamb and, 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 the, and the bride, um, this is the biggest party going on in heaven right now. Whenever a, a lost one comes home, it's truly the extraordinary. We're celebrating those things. And, and then fourthly, how about just regular answered prayer? Like when you pray for something or someone, big or small, and though it might not be defined as a miracle, God answers your prayer in the positive. So whether it's a provision that you were asking for or a need that somebody else has or a marriage that's gone south or financial need that's in there or a kid that's rebelling, and you pray, and then all of a sudden the person tells you later or in your own life says, wow, it was answered in the positive. I think that's God breaking through <laughs> in the extraordinary in our lives. And then lastly, we covered this a couple weeks ago, how about God's activity in and through your life, through others in your life, others' voices? 
I made that list a few weeks ago of 10 voices, kind of like John the Baptist voice, that have been in my life since I became a Christian 30 plus years ago. And I've been thinking about that list now for the last few weeks, and I'm just amazed at how extraordinary those voices have been in my life. I mean, look at that list on the screen, Cactus Venue and Chapel. Look at that list. Don't limit God's extraordinary to just signs and wonders that you read about that you might or might not experience this side of heaven. He works in amazing ways, and he wants to break through into your life all the time. Truly, the extraordinary is an avenue that's bigger than we think. So seek him and pray, and then thank him all the time for what he does. Let me close with this thought and we'll pray. My uh, mentor, one of my voices over the last 10 years, or 30 years, a mentor of mine, um, was a guy by the name of Lud Goltz. Lud was my pastor when I first became a Christian. He would eventually become the pastor emeritus of my church in Cleveland when I pastored there as the senior pastor for six years. And and Lud stayed on staff and we became close friends. We've done trips together. He's been a, a key influence in my life. He he formulated a phrase a few years back that became very meaningful for the entire church in Cleveland, and the phrase was this. He called the phrase God sightings, God sightings. And he challenged the church throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, to just start adding to their spiritual repertoire this idea of God sightings. Where do you see God in and through your life? And even maybe where you see him break through. And I got to tell you, that caught on like a brush fire. Bad analogy in the desert, but it caught on uh, just like a lot in my church back in, in Cleveland where people started to talk all the time about God sightings, of where they saw God moving and active in their lives. I'd like to challenge us to the same. That, that, that if anything comes out of this avenue here, other than a maybe good theological exercise on how to make sense of miracles and signs and wonders today, if anything really practical comes out of this, maybe you and I start to have more open eyes to the God sightings in our lives. And as we've already established, even be so bold as to ask him. And I can't wait to see the, hear the stories that you might tell me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that even a simple story like this that we're tempted to gloss over in Mark chapter 1, because it's about things that we really don't understand, are richly profound and powerful for us today. And Lord, I I thank you that you are still a God who desires all the time to break through into our lives, into the very fabric of our lives, in both the ordinary as well as in the extraordinary. So God, I pray we be men and women of faith. I pray that we would not allow our lack of faith to ever limit what you might want to do in our lives, but that we would trust you with everything in us and, and jettison the things of this world and place our weight and our faith upon you. And as we do, God, would you take us from the ordinary to the extraordinary in all of its fullness and in any way that you deem appropriate. So, Lord, we do love you. We do trust you. And we thank you for your word and for your truth, for your son, Jesus Christ, and even for the indwelling and power of your Holy Spirit. We know we're not alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. Amen.